0: Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, to start the new year, we're talking the oil markets. What were the key trends and developments in 2023? And what can we look forward to in 2024? Our guest is David Vech, David's had a 20-year career in economics in the oil markets. He's the chief economist of Vortexa, the ship tracking and data analytics company. As always, you can really support the show by leaving us a positive review, ideally a written review on the platform you're listening on. It really helps expand our audience and therefore continue to allow us to get great guests on. And as always, I hope you enjoy the episode and happy new year. David, welcome to the show.
1: Welcome. It's a big pleasure for me.
0: So we're starting the new year with a review of the oil markets in 2023 and what we think might be some of the key events or gates to look out for in, in 2024. So let's dig into the, the here and now. I guess if you look back over the last year, there's, you know, there's been a lot of volatility in the predictions alone, right, about where oil would end up at the end of the year, with quite a significant cohort talking about100 dollars a barrel. You know, in, including, obviously, some of the discussions that we've had prior to this as well. Yet, as we stand today and we're recording this, uh, the, the middle part of December, prices are, are in the 70s. Can you just give us some sense of kind of, you know, what's happened there and, 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 and where we are?
1: I think what has really happened over the last couple of months, uh, maybe already pretty much over the second half of uh, 2023, uh, is a dramatic slowdown in oil demand momentum, and I think that has catched a significant part of the market by surprise. Perhaps we can talk later on a little bit more in detail, but it really looks like the quite relevant uh, pockets of the market. We see an outright decline, basically, on a year-on-year basis and not even just a slowdown in the growth momentum. And I think in this context, what is simply very important is that the oil industry is an industry that is uh, operating very close to edge, to capacity, basically. So the way from a market where everybody is wondering how the the, the marginal demand can be met and how the refining industry and the upstream industry is able to do that to a situation where there is a bit too much supply in the market and that is then really weighing on prices, uh, that is a very short distance, so to say.
0: So it is very finely balanced. Um, Before we move on, because I guess numbers are going to be important here, what is that current fine balance in terms of global demand and consumption?
1: yeah i i think uh, we are generally moving or what is what is really what is really changing in the market over the last couple of years is that there is much more data available it's uh, basically companies like vortexa we are tracking basically every single vessel at sea so we can see pretty closely the, the entire picture and, and we can add up these volumes in essentially in real time so in comparison, when I started in the industry more than twenty years ago, it was really you know a big level of uncertainty of how much supply is coming to the market, how much is optic producing, where, where is demand standing. We were basically type of waiting for annual figures to get the complete uh, global picture, and that included a lot of estimates. But now we are basically seeing how much oil is reaching the market we have uh, data from more than 110 countries globally that track basically again in real time the inventories of crude oil and we have seen in 2023 that basically the oil price developments and the market structure whether the market is in degradation or contango these tended to behave very closely in line with how much oil was at sea how much oil was being delivered how much oil was was going into or coming out of storage
0: Mm. And I, I guess I'd like to end up on talking about that because that's kind of an interesting dynamic, the, the granularity now in terms of data that's available to the oil markets and, and how that impacts the ability to trade it. But we'll, we'll come back to that. So, So let's talk about that strong signs of kind of slowing demand can you dig into where and how that's manifesting and then tie it back into perhaps a broader picture of whether that presage is a, a you know a recession or whatever it might be in 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 2024
1: yeah again what we are doing at Votexa is we look at the global seaborne flows so what we can see for example is that these flows of crude and refined products they have never fully recovered to 2019 levels it looked like late uh, 22, early 23 that this point would be just about to be reached, where we are back to 2019 levels. But then basically the development went back southwards, especially if you include the very light components like LPG, which are steadily seeing increasing exports out of the US uh, based on 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 the, on the sh- still going on shale boom. So uh, that's basically, I think, a pretty important observation that actually volumes transported at sea have been declining most of the time throughout uh, 2023. We also do some metrics where we look at the 100 biggest import ports for key products like gasoline and diesel. And we define an import port as a port where at least 90% of the flows imports, so in order to exclude trading hubs like Rotterdam or Houston. uh, And the idea is that this will give a pretty close idea of how the latest basically consumption figures, sales figures in the port hinterland are doing. And again, if we look at both gasoline and diesel and the second half of 2023, figures have actually been lower on a year-on-year basis than in the second half of 2022, and the growth momentum has slowed down also drastically versus the first half of the year. So these are a couple of key indicators that demand can't be doing that well. I think uh, there are probably two main factors here at play. One is basically that this period of the COVID recovery uh, is now essentially really over. We have seen very strong travel demand in the summer last year, but um, that was basically, so to say, the last uh, revenge after the COVID period. People really wanted to to, to travel a lot, uh, but uh, basically, yeah. So so we have uh, we have, we have now uh, maxed out this this type of recovery trend, uh, and of course, uh, the world economy is in a difficult situation. We have massive inflationary pressures in most parts of the world. We have, I think, can be said, de facto, uh, a manufacturing recession. When manufacturing data is, is is very bad in Europe, is not looking good in the U.S. is looking pretty good as well as in in China so i think in that part of the global economy uh, things are not looking too good and uh, i think the uh, basically yeah if you want the global economy as such is still struggling with the effects of two years of very high inflation level
0: yeah and high interest rates as we've covered Let's just spend a moment on China because, you know, the FT conference back in the Financial Times Commodities Summit back in March, you know, a lot of a lot of predictions hinged on China's recovery coming out of COVID lockdown. That doesn't seem to really have materialized struggling with low consumer demand overspending on infrastructure and the, the hangover from that the debt crisis there what what's going on with crude imports and product exports from their pet chem sector in China
1: yeah the recovery depends a little bit on how you look at it uh, there has definitely been a massive recovery uh, especially if you look at the second quarter uh, of 2023 versus the second quarter of 2022 which was the the key COVID period in China but the problem is that ever since then the momentum has really stalled entirely. So crude imports are trending lower for about four or five months. There have been very high petchem imports, petchem related product imports across the middle of the years, but this is also uh, trending lower now. There is a huge amount of structural issues, basically, with the Chinese economy. The Chinese population is steadily aging, it's actually shrinking. Nevertheless, you have a massive amount of youth unemployment. Uh, of course, China is highly dependent on the global economic performance, being such a big export market, and there are challenges, basically, left and right. Ultimately, all the geopolitical challenges are also not, so to say, helpful for, for, the, for the Chinese big factory, so to say and um, yeah in the pet industry in particular we have also simply a situation that there is a massive overinvestment in capacity going on so that has temporarily pushed imports of feedstocks higher uh, but now basically players are realizing that there is far too much capacity in line with that you know margins are coming under pressure and then uh, the, the one or the other players have to reduce operation rates and then with that basically the entire uh, dynamics in, in in trade is also coming down What is probably particularly striking at this point in time as well is that we have uh, now in China, uh, but also in Europe, an observation where crude inventories have been drawing for many months and are generally at pretty low levels. Nevertheless, crude imports are also coming down. And even with the lower prices uh, we have recently seen and the much lower spot differentials and so on, there is no sign so far uh that there is comeback demand. So basically refiners and buyers they stay on the sideline even for prices compared to where they have ever been earlier in twenty twenty three. They are not showing interest. So uh basically that is giving us strong indications that these refiners are seeing really poor demand figures, and are with that also pretty confident that there is not much upside to to oil prices at this point of time because otherwise they would make use of this uh, lower prices uh, that's I think a signal to look for an inflection point as well as on a side comment
0: interesting. Just one question before we move on you You spoke about lower seaborne volumes. How much is this data impacted or this insight impacted by the the dark fleet you know russian oil other sanctioned oil moving around that you know we just don't have any visibility in because the ships have turned their transponders on or whatever it might be
1: yeah Yeah, that's a very good question i think the impact of that is uh Not uh, basically on the data quality in terms of levels over time. It's it's on the data quality in terms of how 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 up to date it is. So basically, to give you an example, if uh, Iranians, for example, are trying everything to hide their exports, that is making our life much more difficult. But we have very good sources to tell us when the Iranian volumes are arriving in China. So basically, at that point of time we can sometimes only at that point of time, we can basically back construct what has happened before. A quick word on on the much more relevant flows in terms of volumes from Russia. There is only, you know, the signals are only occasionally turned off. They are not consistently turned off. So we may have to infer when and where the vessel has been loading, for example. But it's not that we don't uh, we are not able to track it altogether. So so these these factors are making our life a little bit more difficult and a little bit more, how to say, if you want, also interesting occasionally. But they are not hindering to grasp. I don't know the ninety nine point eight or whatever percent of the volumes. Yeah, it's it's it may be only the occasional cargo here and there that stays dark. And then again, I say it. Um, Whether it stays dark for its entire voyage time for good, uh, I would already doubt that.
0: Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, so that's a relatively sort of somber picture on the demand side. Tide, you know, we haven't obviously mentioned greenhouse gas emission goals and sustainability goals. This seems to be much more of a a shorter term economic impact. and let's and you actually talk about that in terms of the supply side and and that cross border energy trade is 99% of or oil is 99% of that or hydrocarbons are versus electricity so we're not seeing that impact yet so we're very much sort of talking in the short term here but let's let's turn to that let's turn to the supply side what is what is going on there you know are, are we are we seeing investment driven by those higher expectations last year and so forth and where, where's the supply side
1: yeah uh, i i think uh, it, it's good here to differentiate uh, between sort of say certain uh, specific short-term developments or current developments uh, so one aspect that is interesting to note is uh, that we see loads of supply out of the americas It's predominantly the U.S., but not only to the U.S. There are countries like Brazil. Guyana is a big newcomer in the market. Canada is also seeing growing uh, exports. If we take just the U.S. alone, the U.S. alone has imported an equivalent of half a billion tons per annum uh, of seaborn oil and gas, both in October and November. It's the first time ever that these levels have been reached. Two years in a row, two years in two months in a row. I'm sorry, and. First of all, uh, we can, that's an easy forecast for, for, for this year. Basically, uh, there will, more, more will come out of the US uh, again, particularly on the light hand side, uh, LNG, uh, LPG again, but also crude to a certain extent. And uh, just to put this into context, this, this level is three times higher as we have seen in 2016 so just within seven years basically there has been uh, a tripling of those volumes but um yeah i've mentioned guyana is one of the new producers out there and uh, it may very well be the last big additional supplier to the market and there is definitely an issue that uh, investment in the industry is yeah, not not going too well, and what is often overlooked is people, you know, like to look at the latest U.S. data, which is most of the time go, growing. It's an interesting thing to follow the start up of production uh, in Guyana, but what is very often a little bit overlooked is the natural decline. So basically, the steady shrinking of supply if you're not constantly investing. An interesting observation, for example, is within the OPEC group. I would argue that within this OPEC plus group, there is really only two countries that have carbon spare capacity, Saudi Arabia and UAE. And when after the COVID period, they rapidly and steadily increased the production quotas already in late 2021, exports of the group started to stagnate Yeah, uh, for a full further year the quotas were increased and increased increased, but the volumes did not increase. And that was just showing that uh, all these countries had very quickly basically come back to the maximum capacity, and that has been already significantly lower than in 2019. So basically, this COVID period had a significant impact. European crude exports are declining for the last uh, four or five months in a row, and that's in spite of this new addition of this big Johans Redwood field in Norway. So natural decline is a big uh, factor, and uh, I think that's uh, basically we we are we are already entering i think in a new phase of the industry where i would tend to say that it doesn't really matter that much actually whether oil demand is growing at the margin or declining it's really that the point is that the the starting position is so massive. Yeah, so hydrocarbons are still accounting for 83% of the primary energy supply. So that's coal, oil, and gas. Yeah, and um, even if we reduce that, uh, which we didn't really manage to reduce actually a lot over the last couple of years, but even if we reduce it, and if we assume that world oil demand, uh, and that is far against any forecast, but if we were to assume for a moment that it were to decline from 100 million barrels per day today or a little bit more than that. 80 million barrels per day in 20 years time we would still need a lot of investment in the industry because you constantly we need to replace production, you need uh, to add refining capacity because some refining capacity is constantly dropping out of the global pool, you need to add oil tankers, uh, oil tankers usually with about 20 years are normally reaching the end of their lifetime but we see more and more oil tankers staying out there for longer simply because no new tankers are coming into the market so I think the lack of investment is is a problem all across uh, the industry basically whether it's upstream or whether it's in refining or in oil tankers it's 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 coming in in all these factors
0: we're going to come on to sort of the aging fleet in general particularly refiners and the the tanker piece part of the argument that has been made by jeff curry on this podcast and indeed why we had edward chancellor on early last year (laughs) when this goes out you know is that low interest rates lots of money into financial engineering lots of money into unicorns lots of money into what they would term pie in the sky projects and the argument was as interest rates rose we would start to see capital go back to the oil and gas sector where the returns are are greater and the and and would come much earlier are we are we seeing any shift in that or is is investment is capital still staying away from the sector
1: yeah i my you know I'm, I'm not the perfect expert on this to be honest but my impression is that there is a strong level of hesitation, and uh, that's simply linked uh, to the fact that a lot of investments in the oil industry are for very long amortization uh, emoticip- periods. So basically, if you build a refinery, you need five to ten years to build it uh, to plan it and to build it and then you need to run it at the very least 20 to 30 years that basically means you need to plan 40 years into the future Yeah, and who wants to make a bet on oil demand in 40 years time yeah uh, for an oil tanker perhaps not as long but you need to plan with about 25 years and with upstream industry it may be a little bit quicker by now i mean that's also the, the beauty basically of the shale industry because there you can We've, we, we have a much shorter investment horizon. You basically take, can take a decision today and can already drill perhaps more, produce more in six to nine months, 12 months, something like this. So you have a very quick type of return. But the conventional uh, big upstream projects offshore and so on, there is still, you know, a planning horizon of uh, 15 to 20 years time.
0: Yeah, which, um, you know, could have dramatic impacts in the next five, 10 years, as you say, when when really we don't see that big shelving of of oil demand okay let's return to the the refining margins and aging refining fleet what's that picture look like in 2023 and what can we expect in 24
1: yeah 23 was definitely a very interesting year for the refining industry and i think it was uh, pretty reflective of what was going on in the oil market overall so we really had basically concerns about uh, available capacity especially in the middle of the year we had started the year with very high refining margins because there was the big question of how the loss basically of Russian diesel supplies and other product supplies to the European market could be handled. Uh, So refining margins have been very strong in the first half of the year. Then we had very strong summer demand, travel demand, as I mentioned earlier on. And at the same time, we had a lot of refinery outages. So generally, I think, I mean, the summer seasonality in the refining industry has been there forever. But I think it will be even a stronger factor in the future because I think that oil demand will get even more seasonal the demand of heating oil and and, and oil for for the winter months is generally losing relevance. uh, And it's really basically, uh, yeah, the the road and and air travel uh, is is, is playing a big role. And uh, yeah, in line with what we've also seen uh, the refining fleet, especially in Europe, North America, is getting older and older. And uh, we have more and more of these extreme weather events, very high temperatures. In line with that, we had a very high level of outages in the spring and summer period and that for for a certain period of time, it really looked like that the market would struggle to meet all the demand. But then we had, uh, yeah, I would call it a pretty dramatic turn of events uh, type of in autumn because this very strong margins in the summer months has led to very high product supplies hitting the market uh, late summer, August, September. And then it looked like that the refining maintenance period would take out a lot of supply and would tighten the market even further. There was a strong maintenance period in the Middle East and in India. But the reality was the market did easily cope with that situation. And that was basically to a large extent due to this substantial weakening in demand momentum. And to the last couple of months and uh, last year have simply been very well supplied, and that's uh, the case even for some of this new refining capacity that was starting up over the last year. Did start up only relatively slowly, uh, and will still have knock-on effects this year. So some of this uh, capacity, for example, the 600,000 barrels per day capacity in also in Kuwait, will only probably uh, will yeah, if it works well, will only fully run uh, in 2024. Even for the start that was going on uh, throughout pretty much uh, the entire last year.
0: Yeah. Sorry, can you unpick that a little bit for us? So you've got a an aging refining fleet in the the West. You've got these new mega refineries coming on in the Middle East. You know, will they will sort of potential shutdowns in the former be offset by the latter? I mean, or is it quite a confused
1: picture? Yeah, up? I mean, overall, it generally looks like that uh, all the capacity that is in the making and that there, uh, there are basically three refineries in the Middle East that are still in the startup phase, uh, there is uh, one refinery in Nigeria scheduled to come on stream relatively soon. We will see how smoothly that goes. And then there's a refinery in Mexico. Uh, and that's pretty much it for this year. So that's not necessarily a huge amount of capacity. If, for example, the OPEC forecasts of demand growth in, in 2024 of about 2.3 million barrels per day are anywhere close to true, that's very limited additional uh, capacity. So if you believe this type of figures, then we can very quickly basically come again into a period where the refining industry is actually struggling to meet demand. Uh, but of course, it's also possible, uh, as Type of alluded before, that if demand is disappointing, and refineries are running relatively healthily and with not, without too many outages, uh, then we have too much supply. And if these uh, relative healthy supply periods are going on for longer, and refining margins are under pressure for longer, you will relatively quickly have uh, new refining shutdowns popping up. I would argue that there are at least something like 30 refineries in Europe and probably something like 20 refineries in the US, where the owners have more or less concrete plan to shut them down this decade or within the next 10 years. And the decision whether to shut them down and when to shut them down will simply be always a question of how the market is looking like, uh, as well as the next maintenance uh, cycle. Refineries have typically a four to five year maintenance cycle where you need to do a full, uh, how to say, uh, deep work, revamp work, uh, which costs you millions of dollars. Uh, and this decision whether to do this full next cycle or not will uh, yeah, often be linked with the question of whether the, the overall operations will continue. So uh, basically, I think this is a type of mechanism that is in place now uh, that will make sure that the refining industry will pretty much most of the time uh, make relative. Decent earnings, uh, especially compared to the to the to the long history of the industry, uh, simply because uh, the the yeah the spare capacity will always be pretty limited, yeah, except for short periods of 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 slowdowns. But then you will have shutdowns coming in relatively quickly, as we have seen also in the COVID period. Yeah, so um, we find that the margins have only been really weak for about a year's time. And then basically all the shutdowns have have taken out the slack of the system and have led to a uh, a healthy recovery in refining marches.
0: The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website hcgroup.global. There you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. It's interesting because it also points to some of the volatility. Exactly. You've got these the shocks of unplanned shutdowns. You've kind of got this interesting setup of game theory at the boardroom level about who jumps first on, on closing down with that maintenance schedule and it all points to the trend that we've seen accelerate in 2023 which is all of these refiners globally and producers as well the majors are all trying to build trading capabilities to manage that volatility capture margin and actually inform these longer range strategies right so it all it all ties in together with this concept that we've been really talking about in 2023 which is volatility which which brings me on to I guess the the oil trading part and it's been extraordinary really when you sort of step back that 2023 is another year like 2022 and really since covid where the trading world sometimes much maligned in the press you know has been crucial and instrumental in enabling these markets to actually function and managing these risks right we haven't seen kind of the big energy security issues arise, despite some of this background volatility that we've been seeing. Can you can you talk to that a little?
1: Yeah, I think it has been amazing once again to see how responsive uh, the market is. And that's ultimately uh, the business of the traders uh, to make sure that all the available barrels are supplied to where they are needed. Under a set of conditions, yeah, and the conditions have changed with sanctions on Russia, but under these conditions, the market has been extremely quick uh, to to reallocate uh, the spells uh, properly. Uh, and just to follow up uh, the, the, this one percent figure you have mentioned before, uh, it is an, an a, a, I think an amazing statistic that ninety nine percent of the global cross border energy trade is happening in hydrocarbons, and the huge majority of that is actually happening in oil. So, that is pointing to the virtue of oil, that it is easily traded everywhere. Yeah, uh, every country has input and export infrastructure. You can send around vessels all around the globe. So, you can meet any shortfall that is happening wherever it is pretty quickly yeah within days or weeks um and in, in yeah in, in my two decades of uh, observing the industry i've seen this so often yeah it doesn't matter whether it's hurricane outages or some other or, or some some strikes or whatever may happen uh, around the world there is a very swift uh, readjustment, basically of uh, flows at sea and a new equilibrium is, is found very, very quickly. And uh, uh, last year, I think the, uh, one of the one of the key observations, and honestly I've been wondering a little bit myself, was basically this question about uh, uh, the Russian diesel supply to the European market. And in retrospect, uh, it was so easy for the market to cope. We, we have seen basically, first of all, a significant increase in the intra-European diesel flows that included uh, to a certain extent also Turkey. So Turkey has started to import a lot of Russian diesel that has freed up their own domestically produced diesel for the European markets. We have seen stronger uh, supplies from the Middle East and India to the European market, and to a certain extent also from the US. From a global shipping perspective, these are all relative nearby markets, so it's not necessarily a strong addition to to the shipping costs, so to say, in that regard. Uh, for the other side, for the Russians, it was partly way more difficult to find the alternative outlets, which has often been much further afield. Uh, but then again, you know, you, new players were popping up uh, in the Middle East, in in, in India, in China, uh, and took care of 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 the logistics and as well as well of uh, basically of the placement of these barrels.
0: Okay, so so I guess moving on to the we're doing this I means a, a fantastic sweep of of the oil markets in 23 and, and and we'll come on a bit more to what next year might look like but the other big story obviously is on the the oil tanker side where we had these extraordinary rates post covid what's been happening there
1: yeah it's uh, it's a very interesting market um and uh, yeah freight rates have been very healthy Uh, I still remember very well an industry conference I've been in in November in New York uh, on on, on the shipping industry. And I have never seen before such a bullish and and happy crowd. They were basically all smiling, uh, making a lot of earnings. And that is particularly interesting when you remember what I said before, that the actual volumes of oil at sea have actually been not rising below 2019 level and over the course of last year actually been declining. So how is this possible? It's possible via much longer voyage distances so on average average barrel basically was was just going much longer and that is binding a lot of tanker capacity and that is happening across the board it's happening for crude interestingly enough basically the OPEC cuts uh, in the middle east especially saudi arabia they are actually type of positive for the tanker industry because it basically means that Asian refiners need to buy, instead, American crude, and that is going, uh, so to say, much longer distances. Then, yeah, on the product side, you you have basically the rerouting of Russian barrels. On the more the gas side, you have all these uh, light ends from the Americas uh, reaching generally the East Asian market, which is a very long-distance market. What comes uh, then on top of that is, uh, you know, issues with these choke points, the Panama Canal, has led to much less transit through that area, and that is basically redrawing the global map. You have somehow to imagine that this means that, for example, for the uh, West Coast of uh, Central and North America, it's not anymore the the, the Gulf Coast that is the closest, but it's uh, with one big bang type of South Korea and China were the closest suppliers to that region. So that makes, um, is having huge uh, repercussions, and it's again adding to this ton-mile demand in the in the tanker industry of course all the geopolitical uncertainties uh, the sanctions the, the separation of a tier one fleet from this great dark fleet we talked about before all, all these factors—the the, you know—all this uncertainty in the Middle East and the, the yeah, even bombings of tankers and so on in offshore Yemen—all uh, these factors are adding premiums uh, to the market uh, basically left and right. Uh, and on top of that, uh, there is this other factor I already mentioned before: there is a very limited supply of fresh tankers, yeah, oil tankers. There is uh, quite some addition of new vessels for LNG and LPG. But for for crude oil and core refined products, very short order books. Basically, new vessels coming into the market uh, for a couple of years now and into the future, so that is tightening the vessel supply side and it's contributing to uh, to a reasonably healthy outlook.
0: And there is growing recognition, and I think it could be one of those events in 2024. That suddenly splashes across the world news there is a major environmental disaster with this dark fleet that obviously has brand new captains aging vessels you know new routes i mean it's a bit of a recipe for disaster one note you also put in your in in, in our notes to discuss this was a drought in the panama canal um, can you just help us understand that that sounds like it could be quite a quite a, an impacting event
1: yeah uh so basically the Panama Canal is, is is a crucial transit route from the from the east coast to the west coast of the Americas and uh, it relies basically on water to, to fill these uh, this canals, basically. Uh, and it relies on, on rain um, and on, on lakes in that area. And the, the weather has been very dry for a long period of time. And they are simply lacking the water, basically, to, to maintain these operations. Uh, and that means that the amount of vessels that can pass through is being drastically reduced. And there is a certain order of priority which vessels you send through. Uh, and the oil tank is generally coming pretty much at the end of this list Uh, so that means you're not any more easily able to send gasoline or diesel through the panama canal to the american west coast and uh, that means that you would either have to go all the way across america or basically it becomes more profitable for asian refiners uh, to supply the west coast of the american market
0: Interesting, because a lot of development in the Gulf Coast has been predicated on that Panama Canal expansion, right? So there, There's a
1: couple of challenges, by the way, for Gulf Coast refiners coming up, I think, for, for this year. We have, on the one hand, uh, you know, clearly disappointing demand trends within the US. So that means that the margin more would have to be exported. We have the Panama Canal issue. We have new refining capacity potentially starting up in Nigeria, potentially in Mexico. I'm more skeptical about it. But also, the basically Middle Eastern refined products are entering the Atlantic Basin, market. So this is a couple of factors that will challenge U.S. Gulf Coast refiners and uh, will be be interesting to see how this plays out. It cannot be completely excluded that there could also be the one other refining shutdown in the U.S. uh, in 2024. And the same uh, goes for Europe as well.
0: Interesting. Right. Well, let's move on to geopolitics and let's talk OPEC. That's obviously been in the news a lot this year. Where are we ending the year with OPEC? and what are sort of the internal intricacies there
1: yeah um it has been a, a very in, in, intriguing interesting year actually from from an opec perspective and it's very clear that uh, i would say saudi arabia has called the shots and i think has also been uh, very successful ultimately in 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 changing a couple of baselines so while it is true that uh, saudi arabia has carried the load very clearly in terms of cuts last year They have uh, arranged within the product group, new baselines and we have basically a type of fresh start uh, in 2024 production targets for all countries have been adjusted, and they are now basically reflecting the current production capacities. That has been a big pain for OPEC for a long period of time, that the production targets were completely misaligned with the actual production capacities of uh, various countries. What that means, in other words, is that if uh, the demand situation deteriorates further, you can be certain that Saudi Arabia will ask in a much more, how to say, firm way all the other member countries of the group to contribute to any cutting efforts and i think that's some of the things that will be interesting to see we have already seen basically certain developments on the Russian side Uh, i would say in a nutshell russia has uh, told the market and the opec plus group a lot about cuts in 2023 Mm -hmm. i'm personally not convinced a lot of that has materialized at least we have not seen a significant decline in exports out of russia of crude and products most of the time, these exports have behaved very close to seasonality and uh, with all the Russian budget needs, I would also not be surprised if they tried most of the time to make uh, the most money by talking up the market in terms of prices and sending out as much volumes as possible. But they have provided a very clear mechanism for the cuts in the first quarter. So it is actually to be measured on exports versus the May-June baseline in 2022. And this target level for the, for the exports is very low from a seasonal perspective. So it will be interesting to see whether they will comply with that or not. Uh, overall, uh, I think the, the situation is clearly such that this group will have to continue to manage the market. And the crucial question is basically uh, to what extent Saudi Arabia is willing to do it alone or to what extent it will type of force the other players to come in as well.
0: I guess staying on geopolitics, thanks for that. Staying on geopolitics, the US and sort of the two elements here. One is it it kind of despite lots of protestations on Twitter throughout the year or X, you know, it turns out they they might be one of the best traders out there with the SPR. And, you know, obviously their their sanctions policy towards Iran, Russia, Venezuela, you know, you mentioned Guyana earlier on. Venezuela and Guyana potentially have a we have a a flashpoint there. What sort of been the US picture for twenty three and, and how might that continue into 2024?
1: Yeah, I think uh, the U.S. Uh, authorities are particularly well aware of all the limitations uh, in terms of capacity and supply in the industry. And uh, that is also how they have designed all type of sanctions. Uh, there is a lot of discussion on this Russian price cap. Uh, which is still often misunderstood. There is nothing in, in, in the related sanctions from the US uh, that hinders, for example, China or India to buy Russian oil uh, at any price, as long as they're not using Western services. If they want to use Western services, then they have to adhere to the to the price cap. So what I want to say is that basically the intention here is very evidently to keep the barrels in the market, but just try to penalize the sellers, so to say, why uh, are increasing the logistical costs yeah and uh, i think to a certain extent that has worked i think uh, you know russia is typically getting a couple of dollars or ten dollars per barrel, whatever less than they would get in another environment um but uh, and at the same time the, the oil has stayed in the market and um uh, yeah i think uh, that's still the case i mean it's even if if more recently the market has looked much looser uh it is as we, we are in a market where inventory levels are very low from an historical perspective, especially for crude oil. Uh, And essentially, uh, you know, losing one player like Libya or also Iran uh, completely, because Iranian exports have gone up quite significantly over the course of 23, uh, especially in the first half of the year. Uh, Yeah, then the market can run very quickly uh, short again.
0: And this is obviously you know there is a wider escalation of conflict in in the levant as a result of of what's going on in in israel that could have a significant impact can you just i guess sort of staying on that theme a little uh it is always and it always is a complex picture what is kind of the everything normal scenario where, you know, what does that mean for oil prices? And I know it's always unfair to ask this of an economist, but I'm going to anyway, it's sort of the, the, the roughly speaking, everything continues as is, you know, do we do we see a steady, slow trend downwards or stabilizing in the 70s? And then what are kind of the one or two shocks, we've noted a couple of them here, that you think could really change the the outlook to the to the upside strange term but you know prices rapidly going higher what are kind of some of the the shocks that people need to look out for that could happen
1: uh let, let's uh start with the with the normal uh, scenario i mean it's in the oil industry it's really a bit of a funny question what is the normal situation I would say, I mean generally we we have seen uh, last year, and I think the chances are very high, we will continue to see that that there is basically an OPEC plus group which is willing to cap the downside, yeah and if necessary, that is being done by reducing the supply to the market. I would also like to to mention on a side note here that this is I think ultimately something. Uh, pretty much everybody in the market is type of interested in. Yeah? So that includes the US, where the shale industry is dependent on a reasonable oil price. Uh, it includes Europe, which wants to shift away from oil to other energy sources. Uh, that is only possible if oil is reasonably expensive. And it includes the Chinese market, who uh, linked to the European efforts, want to be the big player in electric mobility. Again, this will not work if oil is ridiculously cheap. So basically I think ultimately everybody wants to have some stability and some minimum level that is able to, to, that allows to to basically plan all type of investments. The, The question is basically to what extent OPEC can really cap the upside. And that is, you know, the other thing that uh, doesn't get a lot of appreciation, but uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE and uh, SAIT, I think it's the only two countries, really, they have a significant amount of spare capacity. Uh, so they're all the time willing to have this capacity uh, available to come in, but it is surely limited. Yeah? I guess personally, it will be somewhere between one to two million barrels per day. So basically the shock and pull price is much higher. Yeah, evidently comes from the supply side. Unfortunately, there are so many scenarios you can build in today's world. Yeah, you can talk about the Strait of Hormuz and Iran doing something there. You can talk about uh, Yemen and, and the area over there. There could be a natural, a bigger, a bigger, how to say, accident in, in the Suez Canal or somewhere else. You have mentioned Venezuela, which has become a concern as well. Of course, you know, uh, war with Ukraine is still going on and uh, Russia. Is still being sanctioned and, and subject to, to all type of uh, political pressures, and of course, it cannot be completely excluded that at uh, one point of time, uh, Russia decides to, to to stop exports partially or to block just exports uh, from Kazakhstan via Russian territory and Russian ports. So ultimately, I think the big risks on the supply side. I, if you if you're interested in the upside to prices. Of course, you could make the argument that uh, if all these economic concerns go away uh, and oil demand were to boom next year, then this could also be a driver. But I personally don't see that. I think that generally, how to say, it's ultimately uh, flexible oil demand that is uh, to a certain extent also uh, modulating uh, or, or steering prices. The point is you know and we have seen this also again last year if prices reach hundred dollars or past the hundred dollar area then you have a very swift basically reaction on the consumer side because ultimately it's uh it's a lot of individuals around the world who are then thriving a little bit less or perhaps they're doing the one or other uh, uh air trip less uh, and that uh, in accumulation does have an impact. Uh, stocks are being drawn down and so on. Uh, at the same time, if oil is getting cheaper, you can immediately see in the U.S. that there is more driving going on. People are getting easier with their spending. So there is a certain level of uh, demand side uh, sensitivity, which is leading to a also apart from optic to some type of auto correction in the price range so i personally would say any sustained move out of a of a window from 70 to 100 dollars per barrel uh is uh, is not particularly likely for for next year
0: yeah but if it does it's probably supply driven rather than anything else yes interesting okay so coming full circle i mentioned this at the start um it is fascinating that you know as you as you started out by saying the granularity of data and obviously converting that data into information is so much more than it was when you started your career and seems to advance every every year you know with obviously the growth of Vortexa and we can put a link to, to your company in the show notes you know is that a and this is sort of going a little bit off topic but to finish it up is that sort of a, a net positive for the the merchants and the traders you know is this in you know, or uh, you know who who presumably you know the, the, with all of these potential shocks and disruptions you know that's where they really come into their own and that's why for the most part you know you have these sort of two or three big moves a year which trading houses and so forth can capitalize on but that must have a profound impact on i guess a the ability of refiners and these majors to actually accurately hedge and also but on the kind of the the opportunity out there for the traders who typically that data was very much proprietary and was delivered by their asset base that they spent 15 years building
1: yeah it's a very interesting question i would tend to say that for the big trading houses uh, all this data availability is not necessarily helpful because in the past they may have seen one third of the market directly and that may have been good enough to call the shots while everybody else wasn't seeing anything. Yeah, it was just a black box. In today's world, basically, type of one-man shows uh, somewhere with access to our data and many other data sources can perfectly call potentially the oil market. I found it generally pretty interesting that this uh, sell-off we have seen in Q3 last year was actually first driven uh, by the futures market. and. Uh, only afterwards it was basically showing up in crude differentials in market structure. Uh, to, yeah, we finding much as a bit of mixed picture. But usually I would tend to say it's the other way around. Yeah. So what I want to say is that basically this sell-off was more driven from a big picture perspective and not necessarily so much from basically the on-the-ground reality. At least not in the crude market.
0: Yeah, interesting. And that's kind of a trend that we've been covering over the last couple of years, notably with, with Greg Newman as well, and some other oil traders. Well, David, it's been a fantastic discussion. I've really enjoyed it. I look forward to, to having you back on this time next year and, and we'll see where we stand. But I think you've really framed up last year and then and this year for us it, from a perspective of the oil markets.
1: Yeah, many thanks for having me. It was a big pleasure for me as well.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.